I'm Edith Chakraborty and welcome to a special edition of The Business, dedicated to all things great and small. Coming up, we'll discuss whether Britain's small businesses hold a key to guiding the country out of recession and ask, are there still angels, investors and dragons out there in these tough times? What can a government do to help turn intellectual property into profits? And what business practices can our large companies take from their smaller startup cousins? Size doesn't matter. This is The Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the pod this week, we have a small but perfectly formed trio. Dan Didhams-Roberts is the head of business for The Guardian. Deborah Pintsize Hargreaves is our business editor. And Rod Giant-Schwartz is the CEO of Clearly So, an online marketplace for social business, enterprise and investment. Going around the panel, can each of you tell me whether you think small really is beautiful? Deborah, let's start with you. Well, I'm quite short, as you know. So, yes. Rod, what do you think? I think it is beautiful. I think there's four things that are important about small business. They create most of the jobs and will continue to do so. They generate most of the commercial innovation, about 60% of it. People who run small businesses are actually connected to their customers. So if you're running a large, giant business, you're mostly worried about keeping your job. But if you're a CEO of a small company, you're thinking about your customers. And finally, I just think social uh, small business sorry, is the way of the future. I think in a networked economy, we don't need the big sort of monoliths that we had in the past. And I think uh, small business is going to lead the way in the next 10 and 20 years. Dan Roberts, top that. I suppose I'd just add that I think this comes at a time when we're really reassessing big business. We've had a, a, an awful shock to, to the system, not just the financial system, but also our faith in institutions generally has been rocked by a series of corporate scandals. And I think there's a growing feeling that culturally um, some of these huge bureaucratic big institutions are, are out of kilter with, with our times. As Rod says, in a, in a world where people are able to connect with, um, with people much more easily, I, I, you don't need businesses employing hundreds of thousands of people. Um, run in very, very hierarchical ways. Um, so, yeah, I do think small is beautiful. Can, oh. I, can I just inject a note of caution here, though, because my husband runs a small business, and I would say, particularly in these recessionary times, what he spends 90% of his time doing is chasing bad debts, and he spends all his time chasing up big companies who owe him money, and he fears may go bust and not pay him, and it's easy to forget how difficult it is for small businesses to get their funding secured and to get their payment on time without having a huge um, accounts department just to spend chasing all this um, bad money. I know some nice men from the East End of London who could sort that out. I think he needs them. (laughs) Okay, plenty there to come back to. But first, let's hear from the real people involved in what we're talking about today. Those men and women from the world of small and medium enterprises or SMEs. Our reporter Sarah Lother has more. Ten years as a lawyer left Vanessa Hutchinson burnt out. So after a career break, she decided to swap this... Order! Order! ...for this. Can I take your order, please? She opened the Maho Cafe Bar in London 15 months ago. And as the economic downturn gathered momentum, she looked overseas to fund her business. From the minute I had the thought, the very first thing I did was I started looking for money. I mean, I won't call names, but important people from the Caribbean who now have international, you know, an international reputation, some of whom might actually be English-born and so on, um, you know, went to them because I thought, here's a concept that kind of, it's culturally aligned with what they're doing in the Caribbean as well. And I just literally blasted the entire Caribbean. I didn't feel the confidence to start in London to go to venture capital. You know, the Dragon's Den scenario was scary. And I just, without any shame whatsoever, I took a plane and I went to Jamaica and all over the Caribbean. And I just begged, I just said, but this is what we're doing. 
this was even before we had a formal business plan. One person chased me out of his office and said, well, where's the plan? And I, well, I needed to let you know that we were going to have a plan before we had the plan because this is early days. And so that was how we did it. And through sheer persistence, we got a Caribbean investor. William DeLucy and his partner invested their own money to set up Amplify Trading in January. The business teaches and mentors futures traders to profit from market volatility. And far from the credit crunch making bankers and traders the pariahs of the investment world, the downturn has actually been beneficial to DeLucy's enterprise. First of all, there's a number of high quality graduates out there that would otherwise look for established firms who might be willing to take a risk with a new company like ourselves. The second reason, we've got a great office space in Canary Wharf and the rates we've got that are probably cheaper than they would have been a couple of years ago. I think the idea that trading is unfashionable is completely false. The amount of interest we get in people wanting to be at the forefront of the financial markets is more than ever before because the financial news is in the front page every day. People see this erratic, volatile movement, the suspension on interest rates, currencies, what's happening in commodities. It's now news, and I think more than ever before, people want to be involved. Vanessa and William are one of the 33,000 entrepreneurs this year who've used the facilities of the British Library's Business and IP or Intellectual Property Centre. The centre's Neil Infield stresses patenting and protection of your product is crucial. Yeah, Mandy Haberman invented a, a self-sealing cup for toddlers and she took it round to various manufacturers and they all said, no, no, that's interesting, but we're not interested in, in taking it any further. And then within a short space of time, one of them was actually manufacturing her idea and it took her two years to take them through the courts and you know, win her case and get damages. And now she manufactures it herself. But it was all because she came to us in the early days of doing her patent research and she got a really solid, effective patent that she was able to win that case. I think a lot of the entrepreneurs we see don't realise the way IP can protect their business. So in many cases, we're actually just showing them new stuff that they didn't even know about. And obviously trademark, you can have an informal trademark protection as well as having a registered protection, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. And securing patent protection is one reason Yumi's self-warming baby feeding bottle has taken almost five years to come to market. Managing director Jim Shake says finding an industry partner was just as tough. We looked for manufacturing suppliers, tool makers in this country, and unfortunately, unless we wanted numbers of the order of half a million or above of, of our parts, which we can't as a small business, they weren't interested. So we were actually forced to go to overseas, and we're in China, obviously, and also we're in South Africa. But again, we're thinking about different materials for our bottle and finding manufacturers in this country who would even pick up the phone to a small business like ourselves because the volumes are so low. We contacted six different packaging companies in this, in this country and within about three or four weeks we had one reply. Really disappointing because our volumes are low but as we go bigger, our volumes are crank in, then they'll be interested but then we've got the relationships with other suppliers. It's really, it's really quite difficult. One route Jim Shake took to secure financing his invention was the Angel Network, of which there are many, as Guy Rigby, head of entrepreneurs at accountancy firm Smith & Williamson, testifies. Thousands of angels floating around the strata. Fantastic opportunity. But they're also being chased by loads and loads of entrepreneurs with very poor business plans who are not investment ready. So there are plenty of angels looking to invest in these small businesses. 
There are networks. One of the more well-known ones is called Angels Den, which is recently launched, and they do speed funding events, which are actually great fun to attend. A mixture of angels and entrepreneurs rushing around talking to each other for two or three minutes at a time. There are lots of other networks, London Business Angels, London Business School has an angel network, Investors is another angel network. There are plenty of people out there and plenty of places to go to find the money if you have a good idea and a good plan. The motto of Vanessa Hutchinson's Maho Cafe Bar is the living is easy, but not too easy as this business wants to grow. The whole idea is that it'll expand. It's a retail concept. It might not even end up in food. You know, it could end up in sunglasses and hats and, you know, flip-flops and beachwear. I mean, the whole idea is the core of it is premium Caribbean. Just one example of small enterprises who have ambitions to swap this. Can I take your order, please? For may we take your orders, please? Sarah Lover reporting. And we'll be putting up longer interviews with everyone you heard in that feature on our special Small is Beautiful website. More details at the end of the programme. Deborah, Rod, Dan, a lot of interesting talking points there. But one of the themes that came through most clearly was the problems people had in accessing finance. So let me start with you, Rod. How has the recession and the credit crunch and all the rest of that, how has it affected small businesses in trying to raise money? Well, it's made it very difficult. I mean, most businesses get their money through the banking system, through overdrafts, through credit cards, etc. There are plenty of statistics available which show that bank lending has declined. So obviously, in the teeth of a recession, when revenues are dropping, small businesses now have to cope with a lack of available finance. It's a bit ridiculous because what banks are doing is effectively closing the barn door after the horses are bolted. Now they've made all the bad loans. These loans could be good loans because the economy's already had its recession. Margins on lending are very, very rich, but the banks have uh, uh, gone into hiding a bit. It's really difficult for banks, uh, for businesses to get funding right now. There is a problem, though, isn't there? Because the banks are very wary of lending to a certain type of business in a recession. So there's basically a list that involves anything consumer-facing, restaurants, hotels, the type of small businesses that people might want to set up. They cannot get funding now because the banks think that they have a high risk of going bust and so therefore won't give them any funds. So it's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Well, it's also, uh, historically, the, the depth of a recession is one of the best times to start a business because there's a time lag effect here. Um, and actually, um, many of the biggest um, uh, uh, success stories in recent years, the sort of the big tech monoliths of, of America, the, the Googles and the, uh, 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 and the Microsofts and so forth, a lot of them were started in garages in difficult economic times by people who were thinking beyond the next year or two. Um, and I think, you know, De- Debbie... You're absolutely right that the banks are being very risk averse at the moment. But we, we mustn't get into a too too much of a short term mentality. We're talking about the businesses that are going to be growing in two, three, four, five years time. All right. well, ab- sorry, I think Dan's absolutely right. I think when the banks shouldn't have been lending is when they were lending. And when the banks should be lending is now. OK, well, let, let's think slightly longer term about financing. We, we also heard a lot about various networks that people can go to to try and access angel investment. Do, do any of those really work? Do we have the same, anything like the same kind of uh, accom- accommodating investors as they do in America? They do work. They don't work as well as they do in America. I mean, the way a lot of early stage businesses will get funded is through the three Fs, friends, family and fools. And uh, there are as many of all of those groups here in the United Kingdom as there are in the United States. But the networks don't work as well. And the primary reason they don't work as well is you don't have the big payoffs that you have in the United States. 
Everybody imagines they're going to fund the next Cisco, the next Google, the next Facebook. I challenge all of us to think of one UK or European equivalent success. There are none. And that's an important difference. And why is that? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, people who have been successful entrepreneurs here cash in their chips a bit early. They make 50 or 100 million or 200 million pounds, and they want to cash in their chips and sit in a castle in the countryside, where Americans, for some reason, uh, don't They're care as much about leisure, right. and they want to create something worth billions or trillions of dollars. And I think some of that is part of the explanation. I think there are others as well. I think there's a scale issue as well. I mean, I was talking to a, a businessman yesterday who was um, talking about the difference that he's experienced between a startup digital business in the UK and a startup digital business in the US. He's on both sides. And he says in the US, you basically add a zero to all the sums. When they go and pitch for a piece of work, they're, they're being offered, you know, $10 million, uh, $10 million contracts, whereas in the UK, they might be just a million pound contracts. And uh, that the sheer scale of the US market and the ease of which you can move around it does make it easier. If you've got a niche business, suddenly that's quite a big market you can reach. Um, I'd say there's one other thing. In the United States, the people that back new ventures, the venture capitalists, are by and large people who themselves were entrepreneurs. And they kind of understand what it's like to build a great business. Traditionally here in the UK, it's been accountants. And well, I don't think accountants are the people to back the next Cisco. Let's also just talk about the kind of people that do start up new enterprises. Because one of the things that struck me about that package was it began with ladies offering premium Caribbean, whatever that is, presumably not lilt. Um, but normally this, this kind of stereotypes you get of small, medium enterprise people are that they, they tend to come from southeast, they tend to be white and they're largely male. Deborah. Well, I can go um, based on my own experience. And the reason my husband started his own business was because he couldn't work for anyone else, basically, because he's such a misogynist. But, um, <laughs> misanthropist, I should say. <laughs> no, I mean, I think sometimes people who start their own business are quite are mavericks who find it hard to operate within a big or hierarchical organisation. And also, I think that recessions are a good time to start because you have a lot of people being made redundant, which is not nice for them, but it does tend to concentrate the mind and some more creative ideas come out if you're worried about where you're going to go next and you don't see a chance of getting a job elsewhere and this is what happened to Hewlett Packard was started up they couldn't find jobs during the depression and the, that um, tends to bring out the best in people that sort of creative it may not be a nice way of doing it but it does seem to be quite an interesting time it's attitudes to failure I think as well because um, I mean Alan Sugar got into trouble recently for saying that um, uh, many small business um, small businesses had rubbish business models and were all flaky and we you know would fall apart and uh, everybody reacted with horror because he was the man meant to be promoting small business but uh, he was absolutely right. What I think he failed to mention, though, was that that probably applies to any new startup. I mean, almost everybody I've ever met who wants to start their own business is slightly mad and can sound, to begin with, like they're you know flaky and it's not going to work but it, for every one of those there's there's another that succeeds and i think it's that willingness to take risks and that willingness to sort of perhaps seem a bit silly to your peers or or risk financial loss that actually we're not so great at here um, you often find the sort of people who have successful businesses are people who've tried several different things and failed time and time again but they're determined to keep on trying and then eventually something works so they are the sort of people with persistence and let's also just talk about ideas, because 
the thing about small businesses is, is it encompasses everything from barbers to biotech firms. But what kind of protection is there for people for their intellectual property? That was a, that was another thing that came up in that package that oftentimes small businesses do get legged over by big businesses. Well, to get protected, you need a patent. And for a patent to be of any use, you need to have the resources to be able to protect it. And most small businesses don't have those resources. So the patent system inherently is biased in favor of the larger companies because they have the resources to pay the law firms to get you one. And if somebody violates the patent, they have the resources to uh, go after you. So I think this is just a fundamental problem for small businesses, but not one that we can easily address. Is that something government could do more about? I I think there's lots of things that government can do. I don't think that that's the place where government needs to act. And I think a lot of the actions that government has taken to try to create an enterprise culture, because remember both Blair and Brown talked a lot about uh, about this, they've obviously failed. But it wasn't for lack of desire. I think they were really sincere in trying to do lots of things. I think the things they did just weren't successful. Uh, They created a lot of funds, which went after small businesses. And actually, that didn't really work. All it did was depress returns in the venture capital industry. So they took more money and threw it after a fixed number of businesses. Well, obviously, that's going to depress returns. I think the things they need to do are quite different. Uh, It's a lot about making contracting more equal so that small firms can compete equally with big firms. And it's a lot about getting the basics right, but that's a whole other discussion. Dan, that's quite a damning picture that Rod's given of Labour's record in helping small businesses. I mean, if you were Labour, you might argue that actually they've brought in a special tax rate for small businesses, they've thrown money at research and development. So is it just the case that there's very little government can do to foster a small business culture? I'm coming round to that point of view after 10 years of covering um, what both parties um, uh, say they'll do for small businesses. You can't fault them for trying. I mean, it's initiative after initiative. Um, It's also quite safe political territory. It's motherhood and apple pie. Nobody says they don't want to help small businesses. But actually, I kind of think most of this stuff is probably um, noise. And and the big issues are things like funding, the legal infrastructure, market opportunities, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think you can't turn people into business people. I mean, there are loads of people out there who want to set up their own business and you're always talking to people about, oh, I've got this great business plan. But actually following it through is much harder. And I don't think any government help is going to turn the person with a with a slight idea of a business into a proper entrepreneur because actually those first years are really tough and you're you're worried about what you're doing whether you're going to ever make any money out of it whether you're putting your whole family at risk I mean that is a really difficult time and you have to be the type of person who can withstand that sort of stress. There you go Rod we're actually a nation of wage slaves. I think there are some things that business can do that, that government can do. I think what they should do is actually, as I was saying before, level the playing field so that government contracting isn't so heavily in favor of big businesses, businesses that have the resources to go after those government contracts. Here's an interesting idea. I think they can ban lobbying because lobbying only benefits the largest businesses, the businesses who have the ability to do that. Small businesses don't, and it uh, establishes uh, an unequal playing field. 
I think fundamentally, though, I can't fault this government for lack of intentions, but intentions are, you know, <laughs> I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think what this government needs to do is some of the basic stuff, like fixed transport and the educational system. Those are the things that you really need to invest in to make the small business economy strong. And you really think that small business don't have lobby groups, institute directors, British Venture Capital Association? in comparison with the power of big business. Teeny. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. From small business to big business very big business. Gordon Brown is on a mission to drum up support among the G20 powers to impose a new tax on day-to-day international banking. The so-called Tobin tax, which would impose a charge of up to a quarter of 1% on foreign exchange deals, was first proposed by the American economist James Tobin in the early 70s. The Obama administration has been less enthusiastic about the plan. And before we go much further, let's just go around the panel and see which one, which of you are for or against it. Deborah. Oh, I'm for it, definitely. Tax those bankers to within an inch of their life, Rod. I say. Um, I'm mildly for it, not as enthusiastically as Deborah, but I'm for it. Not we can talk vis- about why in a second. Not as viscerally pro. And Dan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll play devil's advocate a bit. I, I, I think I am for something that will rebalance the economy and bring finance back under control so it serves business rather than the other way around. And I think a transaction tax helps. I think the big question is that nobody's started talking seriously about how they're going to spend the money. If you're going to raise an awful lot of money, you have to also talk sensibly about what you're going to use that for. And I, I think that's the bit, that's the big weakness at the moment. Rod? Well, where we're going to use that, one thing we're going to use that money for is as an insurance system, uh, as something that will be able to pay for the next crisis because these crises will, will come again and again and again. And it's just blatantly unfair that the banks benefited when the times were really good. And then when the times were bad, it was uh, something that the taxpayer had to pick up the bill for. So I think a portion of this tax will be to pay for the next crisis when it happens. And some of it, a tax will actually discourage maybe some of the uh, more lavish types of trading that was uh, undertaken. I think that's a good idea. I suppose what I'm worried about at the moment is we're hearing very confused. Every time somebody talks about a Tobin tax, they have a different pet project they'd like to help. It's either global Poor development, countries, climate, climate change, change yeah. sorting out our structural budget deficit, um, insurance system for the banks. I mean, I think that you know there, there needs to be more and clear a political championing of this with a, with a clear message. I think you sound like you could do the job. I mean, I, I think the best justification for it is to avoid the mess we got back into. I think it muddies the water to throw in things about climate change. And- uh, OK, but before we get to how to spend it, to quote the supplement, um, there is a, a bit of an issue here about whether you'd actually raise that much money because Tobin talked about his tax as throwing sand into the wheels of finance. But the argument's always been that finance can always find ways around it. And Deborah, you're very pro it, but wouldn't it just be a case that this would be another hurdle that bankers could, could jump easily? Well, the, um, the object is to set it at such a low level that it would make it very, well, well, almost too inconvenient to avoid it. And there's been a study done by the Austrian government which has factored in a decline in business of about two-thirds, which is probably um, a bit too cautious. But it still would raise something like £100 billion. So, I mean, it's a lot of money. And if, as Rod says, it could um, stop some of the more sort of fantastical speculation that was going on and some of the more sort of churning um, and those tiny, tiny transactions which are just there for the sake of, of pumping up prices or, or making a quick buck. That's the key thing to remember here is the key intellectual sort of underpinning of this idea is that markets, a greater trading does, has, has not been shown to produce more efficiency in markets. And the theory was that if you have more trading, you have 
have more liquidity, you bring down the cost of capital mm. for people to raise it. That hasn't actually happened. What we've created is this whole edifice of trading that actually ha- hasn't produced lower borrowing costs for businesses, which is what this is all about. It's created this sort of um, th- th- this empire that serves only itself. And and so if you do throw a bit of grit in the, in, in the wheels, you don't actually sort of um, slow down the machine. You just stop the people who are kind of, you know, gaming the system, that, I mean, to mix the metaphor. But I think that's the key thing to remember here is this potentially is a, is a, is a costless tax because it attacks something that is parasitic and not actually benefiting the economy. So is this just going to be another version of the Kyoto Treaty where everyone apart from America supports it? Well, maybe it'll be a, a version of the, the sort of new treaty that America will support. So I think everybody has to go along with it, obviously the United States as well. Uh, but I think, as we've seen, not everybody's going to go along with it. So we're going to have to figure out some other way to get the banks to pay for their own insurance. OK, we're done on all things small and beautiful. My thanks to the panel, Deborah Hargreaves, Dan Roberts and Rod Schwartz. You'll find plenty more podcasts, blogs and think pieces at our special microsite at guardian.co.uk forward slash small is beautiful. Today's programme was produced by Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was The Business. (laughs) 